Uh, morning. Let me just look at your faces again. It's great to see you all. I'm happy to be here and I have this little map of something. I don't know what it is, but um, well, it, it, it is a joy. I've uh, actually, as, as Matthew was introducing me, I, I actually now have a third job uh, as well as being a pastor at uh, Crossway and then uh, the regional leader. Uh, I've just been recently added to Sovereign Grace's national leadership team uh, where uh, I'm, I'm in charge of, of church care and development where I'm going to have the opportunity to work with a, a variety of regional leaders and uh, work with other churches throughout the country. So uh, I'm kind of excited about that and uh, I hope it'll uh, enable me to be more effective in my role as a regional leader here uh, as, as well as there. Um, Matthew mentioned we had time to be together yesterday, and uh, what a joy it was to be with him. Uh, he just came with a long list of questions uh, for me, and I want you to know that those, those, those questions really reflected three things that, um, oh, kids, um, Matthew forgot, and then you're, you're to go to they were holding up these signs, and I thought, like, what are they rating my my uh, introduction? Like, and there was a couple fours there, and I was thinking, man, I, I might just sit down. <laughs> yeah, so kids, run! Come on, you're excited about your classes. Just run, skip. That a boy. Good, get back here. All right, there you go. Uh, anyway, his questions just just really revealed his affection for you, uh, the way he thinks so biblically uh, about leadership and pastoring and his, his desire to care for you. So uh, it's just so encouraging to know that not only with Matthew, but with Josh and Chris, you all are in such good hands. And uh, amen indeed. And uh, it's, uh, it's always a joy to be here. Well, you can open to Ephesians chapter five. Uh, Matthew asked me to join in uh, your series and uh, Ephesians is one of my uh, favorite books uh, in Scripture. I, I teach uh, our class on the doctrine of church at Pastors College, and uh, every year at Pastors College I go through this book with uh, our Pastors College students because I think it's so critical. Uh, people have called Ephesians Paul's Gospel of the Church. Uh, it's, it's the book that uh, I'm sure you're familiar by now uh, most reflects his doctrine of the church. And like a lot of Paul's books, the first three chapters of the book are theological, where he's explaining the purpose uh, of the church, how God created the church, and what the church is for, uh, and the power of the church uh, through the Holy Spirit and through God's just love for it and his work for it. And then he transitions in chapter 4, verse 1, uh, to the practical. So what does that mean for us, uh, given what uh, God has has? Uh, done to create the church. In chapter 4, verse 1, uh, Paul begins, therefore, referring actually to the entire first three chapters of Ephesians, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, referring to the calling to be the people of God, uh, the calling to be the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so Paul, uh, when he makes that transition, he talks about a variety of things. And one of the things that he talks about that we want to look at today is marriage. Marriage is part of the way 
as the church of Jesus Christ, we walk in a manner worthy of that calling to be the people of God. So with that in mind, let's, let's jump right in to Ephesians chapter 5. Let's read verses 22 through 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such blemish, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I say that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of us love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Well, Father, I I pray this morning that... uh, in a passage that I think is familiar to us, that uh, as we have sung, that uh, Holy Spirit, you would just open our eyes to see fresh things here, uh, renew our, our vigor and love for our spouses, um, convict where appropriate, encourage where uh, appropriate, but uh, help us not to miss your love for your church and what you have done to create your church and how you will bring your church to glory. So, Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, work, be at work in us, your people today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to start talking about Jesus and his church before we talk about marriage. Uh, I think oftentimes in this parish, we, uh, uh, passage, we we kind of can put the cart before the horse and we start talking about marriage. Uh, but the point that is being made here is the uh, relationship or the, the, uh, the, the, um, the, the way that Jesus relates to his church being the way that husbands relate to their wives. And so unless we first understand that, how Jesus relates to his church, we can't really understand or grasp what it is that Paul is saying about marriage here. And there's just three things that I want to particularly mention about Jesus and his church that we find throughout this passage. The first is this, that Jesus and his church is the model for Christian marriage. We have a model in Christ's relationship with his church when it comes to marriage. In Ephesians, uh, in, in verse 32 here, 
Paul says this mystery is profound. That word profound there means it has far-reaching implications. There are far-reaching implications to what Paul is saying here. Uh, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. So only in understanding the relationship of Christ to his church can one really begin to not only understand marriage, but begin to have real faith for uh, our marriages because of that. It's also, by the way, if you're here single this morning and you're uh, starting to think, well, let me check my phone, let me start doodling, uh, let me do something else. We're talking about marriage. That has nothing to do for me. Uh, It's also uh, why this passage is germane to everyone, not just married couples, because this passage teaches us primarily uh, about Jesus' relationship with his church, something that is actually germane to every one of us. And Paul does it in a way throughout the passage that actually preaches the gospel to us from the first to the last. It is a full gospel presentation when it comes to uh, this analogy of marriage to uh, Jesus. And so we see in verse 23 and verse 24, Christ's roles in relationship to the church. So in verse 23, we see that Jesus is the head of the church because he is its savior. He is the one who has saved us from our sins. He is the one who has purchased us uh, from from the kingdom of darkness and and brought us into uh, the kingdom of light. And so he has this this role with his church as being its savior. Uh, But then in, in verse 24, it talks about the church is to submit to Christ because he is not only his savior, but he's our Lord. He is the one that has the right by virtue of being God and Savior, to rule over our lives and to direct our lives and to be the head of his body, the church. And then in verse 25, it starts breaking down how he, he gained these roles of Savior uh, and Lord. In verse 25, it talks about the fact that he gave himself up for us. Speaking of the very heart of the gospel, the cross of Jesus Christ, that through his his perfect sinless life, and his sacrificial death on our behalf for sinners. He became sin for us through that sacrificial death, through giving up his life for us, Uh, Our sins can be forgiven, we can be adopted by God, we can be reconciled to God, we can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, we're saved. And so the way Christ became our Savior was by a very specific act of giving himself up for us, a self-sacrificial act of giving himself up for us at the cross, shedding his blood so that sins might be forgiven. But that is not the end of his work. Uh, Because his Lord, he continues in verses 26 and 27, and then 29 through 30, to, to work to sanctify the church, to have a people who are holy, uh, who, who are continually growing in their relationship uh, with him. In verses 29 through 30, it says that Jesus nourishes the church and cherishes the church. So once he has saved his people, there is this ongoing work in our lives to help us to become more like Jesus, to become more holy, to, to grow in him. And then we, we see the wonderful end result of Jesus' love for his church uh, and Jesus' work for his church as Savior and Lord. We say that there is ultimately this goal to present 
his church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So it really takes us, this passage, from uh, the beginnings of the gospel to the very end of the gospel where one day Christ will fulfill his purpose for his church as Savior and Lord and we will all stand before him perfect without spot, without blemish, without wrinkle, uh, just perfect brides. And for those of you who are brides or, or you have been to weddings, you know, there is, there is this uh, wonderful preparation that a bride grows, goes through for her wedding. Uh, she doesn't just, you know, the day look through her closet, I, you know, what should I wear today, my yoga pants and a t-shirt or something like that. I mean, there's a lot of preparation that goes in and makeup and hair, uh, et cetera, et cetera, that when she those back doors open and, and she comes down the aisle. She's presenting herself uh, to her husband uh, with, with the greatest degree of appropriate perfection that she uh, can in that time. One of my most memorable weddings uh, was a wedding I did years ago when I was a pastor in, in Maryland. Uh, the bridal party uh, dis, uh, got dressed at uh, home and then they all packed in a car and they decided on the way they would go to McDonald's uh, on the way to the wedding, and the bride gets the cheeseburger, and uh, she takes a bite of it, and ketchup gushes out of the cheeseburger on the front of her wedding dress. And so uh, when, uh, you know, she tried to clean it up the best we can, but I'll never forget standing up there, and that's a wonderful moment, and usually I, I like to look at the groom during weddings just to see his face and the expression on his face. So the door is open and she comes in and the thing you notice above all else is this huge kind of pinkish red spot on the front of her dress. And I admire her humility, but, but actually at that point, what are you going to do? This huge pinkish red spot on her dress. And so she's coming up the aisle with this huge spot. Her husband's kind of, her husband-to-be is kind of looking at her like, what in the world is going on here? And uh, that is not the picture of the last day. The last day, there'll be no ketchup stains. There'll be no wrinkles. There'll be, there'll be no blemishes uh, whatsoever. That's a, that, that's a picture of Christ fulfilling uh, the work for which uh, he created his church. And, and then we have this wonderful reason for this gospel, and that is that he loves us, that he loves his people. And the reason that he died for them, the reason that he continues to nourish them and cherish them, the reason that one day he will present us uh, free from spot or blemish or any other wrinkle on that day is because of his wonderful love for us. And so in Christ in relationship to the church, as we'll dig in here in a moment, we see the model for a relationship of a husband to uh, a wife. But we actually see more than that. Not only is it a model for marriage, in Ephesians chapter 5, we also find our greatest hope for marriage. Uh, marriage can be difficult. You might be here this morning, you might be struggling in your marriage, or you might know someone who's struggling in their marriage that would, you would like to help. And, uh, and perhaps sometimes as struggles go on and on, we can tend to lose hope. But Ephesians 5 actually doesn't just present us a model, it presents us our greatest hope. And our greatest hope is this, because the relationship of a husband and wife is to represent the relationship of Christ to the church, uh, God doesn't intend any marriage to wrongly represent that relationship. 
that there is abundant grace for every marriage because of God's intention for your marriage. There is abundant grace for every marriage, no matter where you are, no matter where you've been. There is abundant grace for every marriage uh, in order to fulfill the purpose for which God created marriage, which was uh, to show the relationship between Christ and the church. Uh, Gary Ocucci says this so well in his book, Love That Lasts. God wouldn't have used the analogy of marriage to Christ and the church if it weren't possible. It's overwhelming to realize he intends to cultivate the same abundant, unconditional love between a husband and a wife as he himself has for us. And what wonderful hope that is for us, isn't it? Uh, that, uh, that no matter where your marriage might be or no matter whether you're discouraged or happy or you know, maybe someday in the future you'll face discouragement, the greatest hope we have, what we can always look back to is because God intends your marriage, not just marriage in general, your marriage to be a picture of Christ in his church, if you apply yourself, there is grace for you. There is abundant grace for you. There is lavish grace for your marriage to be able to fill what God has called you to in that marriage. And so we see this model. We have this hope. We also see in Ephesians 5 the most important motive for our marriages, and that motive is to both glorify God and the gospel, to make God look good and make the gospel look good through uh, our, our marriages, specifically by the way in our marriages we model that relationship between Christ and his church. The primary purpose of marriage cannot be happiness. More marriages have been ruined by attempting to live happily ever after than any other reason that I know of. Now, here's the good news. The result might be happiness. In fact, the result probably will be happiness, but the goal can't be happiness. Because if your goal for marriage is to be happy, your spouse, inevitably, there's going to be times where they're not going to make you happy. And uh, the, the result is you will tend to get angry, with your spouse, and you will also tend to get angry with God because they're not making you happy. One of the, one of the reasons I believe that there's so much divorce is people living for their own happiness, and when things get tough, they just bolt because they just want to, to be happy. But if the primary reason for your marriage is, is not your own personal happiness— but if it's God's glory and reflecting the glory or the beauty of uh, the gospel, then uh, no matter whether your spouse is holding up their end of the bargain or no matter how things are in your marriage, you can always know that there will be grace for you to do what God has called you to do in your marriage. And so in Christ's relationship with the church, we have this wonderful model we have something that we can actually look to to model marriage for us. We have this great hope that God has abundant grace for your marriage, that you can actually pull this off, you can actually do what you are being called to do here, and you have this wonderful motive beyond just personal happiness or beyond just marriage, uh, this wonderful motive to bring glory to God and to bring glory to the gospel. That's Jesus in his church. Now, having understood that, 
Now let's take a look at husbands and, and wives uh, in this passage. God, from the very beginning, from Genesis chapter 2, has established a divine job description for a husband and wife. And these job descriptions, this, this, these roles that God has assigned uh, in marriage, and I think it's important to say this right up front, these roles are not a matter of, of ability or worth. These roles have nothing to do with ability and worth. Scripture gives abundant testimony to the equality of men and women as far as being made in the image of God, were equally made in the image of God. As far as the saving grace of God, uh, there are no like plan A, plan B, where men get a better plan than women. Uh, so as, as far as creation and as far as redemption, there is utter, complete equality between men and women uh, when it comes to their relationship with God, when it comes to abilities, when it comes to uh, worth. But there is a difference in roles. There are different job descriptions that Paul is going to begin to talk about here. Now, let me also say before I dive into husbands and wives, I think when we think of roles, we tend to think of actions. What are the actions that I am to carry out in these roles? And there certainly are actions. However, I think it's more important when we think of roles to think of attitudes. Because that is actually where, where the Bible majors. That, that's, where, that's where the Bible puts the accent or the emphasis, uh, certainly on the roles, but more importantly on the attitudes that we bring to those roles. And if you get the right attitudes in the role right, you will get the actions right. And so let's take a look at husbands, let's take a look at wives, let's see what this passage says uh, about marriage and what we're called to in marriage and what by the grace of God we're able to do uh, in our marriages. And let's start with husbands. Uh, if I had to just describe in one phrase uh, both the actions and the attitudes, both the roles and the attitudes of husbands, it would be this, loving servant leadership. That husbands' primarily calling is to loving servant leadership. So let's just review what uh, Ephesians 5 says about husbands. In verse 23, it tells us that the husband is the head of the wife. That is, that is leadership. He is the head of the wife. In verse 25, it says that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's loving leadership and that's servant leadership. And then in verses 28 through 29, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. So the husband's role in marriage is to be the head or the leader of his wife. That is the role or the job description that God has for a husband. He is to be the head of his home. He is to be the head or the leader of his wife. The attitude that the husband is to bring to that role, the way he is conduct himself in that role, is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. The role is head the attitude is one of love. And how does Jesus love the church? What did we 
read when we, when, when we studied the way that Jesus loved the church? Well, he loved the church sacrificially. He loves the church by always doing what is best for the church. The church needed saving, and so he saved. The church needed leadership, and so he is our head. Uh, the church needs to uh, grow in, in holiness, and so he nourishes us, and he cherishes us, and he ensures that he will bring us to the day where we will be able to stand before him perfect. Jesus always does what's best for the church. Jesus always serves his church sacrificially. That's why here it's interesting that Paul uses a word for love that means love that's totally unselfish. You know, there's, there's kind of a you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours kind of love. Um, that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about an unselfish love. And so a husband does have authority. He is the head, he is the servant. But that authority is grounded in loving responsibility. Stuart Scott, in his wonderful book, The Exemplary Husband, said it this way, that this love which a husband is called to is a selfless and enduring commitment to the will of the will to care about and benefit another person by righteous, truthful, and compassionate thoughts, words, and actions. There are no wasted words in that definition. Selfless, enduring commitment by righteous, truthful, and compassionate thoughts, words, and actions. Men, husbands, that's what it looks like for Christ to love the church. That's what it looks like to you to love your wife. Practically speaking, that means you provide for her. That means you protect her, both materially and spiritually. That you nourish her, that you cherish her, that you help her to grow as a Christian woman, that you honor her, that you understand her, etc. Now, I think it's interesting. I think God realizes that husbands can tend to be a little dim. Uh, I can tend to be a little dim. So, you know, for husbands that are a little bit dim and you don't quite get Jesus loved the church, how does that work? Let, let me give you another example of what this might look like that you might be able to get. In verse 28, he begins in the same way. So uh, Paul intends a parallel here. In the same way that Christ loved the church, love your wives as you love your own bodies. Does that perhaps turn on a light? Does that perhaps bring a little more clarity to this? The assumption here is that everybody loves themselves and everybody wants what is best for themselves. I can tell you with great assurance that I am committed to nourishing and cherishing myself. <laughs> I love to nourish myself, particularly with food. I love that. I, cher I cherish me. Oftentimes there'll be times where we'll like be in a question and answer kind of thing. I'll say, anybody have any questions? And, and uh, it'll be quiet. And I say, listen, don't worry about the silence. Uh, I'm just thinking happy thoughts about myself right now. Um, and so I, I, I love to cherish me. And, and husbands, you probably do the same. So if you have a hard time fully comprehending, man, Christ's love for the church, how can I, how can I possibly do that? I have no trouble. I have vast experience in understanding what it looks like to cherish myself and to love myself and to put myself first and to care for myself first. And husbands, if you can't get Christ in the church, 
just think about how much you love and care for yourself, and that'll put you into the picture. Now, I think it's important just for a moment to talk about uh, the opposite of loving servant leadership. The opposite of loving servant leadership isn't hate. It's like, yes, I, love my, I hate my wife, love my wife. That, that's not the point. The opposite, biblically, of loving servant leadership is harshness. Where husbands tend to fall short is the area of harshness. Headship or leadership in your home is not the right to arbitrary or selfish or lazy or prideful rule. That's not how Christ leads the church. And that harshness can actually take two forms. One uh, can be domineering, just leading your, your, your family, and particularly leading your wife in, in, in a domineering, tyrannical type of, of uh, manner. So you're authoritarian, you're bossing everybody around, what I say goes, I don't need any help, woman. Um, you know, verbal abuse perhaps, or physical abuse, uh, a domineering attitude instead of a loving attitude far more frequently and sadly uh, can be just an abdication of your responsibility, a failure to take seriously your responsibility to lead and, and abdicating the role that God has called you to. And uh, even though we often think of domineering as worse, domineering and abdicating are really this, the two sides of the same coin and, and they have an equally bad effect on your wife. Both of them are rooted in laziness, which is a form of selfishness, and they're both the opposite of loving servant leadership. Leading with grace and patience and understanding is slower, it's more difficult uh, to do than simply bossing uh, somebody else around or dominating someone else. Um, what often happens is husbands vacillate between the two. Uh, they abdicate, and then when, they're, when, when their wife um, responds to that, they tend to uh, dominate. And, and what, when that happens, what happens is our wives are tempted to fear and resentment. So let, let me finish this section on husbands by, by simply challenging you with this. If the fruit of your leadership in, in your home or of your marriage is not increasing beauty in your wife, uh, in increasing Christ-likeness in your uh, wife and a, a growing uh, expression of her personality and her gifting uh, and her relationship with the Lord. It's not, it's not biblical headship. So husbands, your role is to be the head of your family. The attitude is to do that as a loving servant of your wife. Now, wise, I would sum up your biblical uh, responsibilities as this. Respectful, submissive, helping. Respectful, submissive, helping. Uh, let's, again, look through Ephesians, what it says for wives. Uh, in verses 22 through 24, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And then in verse 33, let the wife see that she respects her husband. 
Now, even though it doesn't use the word, we actually have to go back to Genesis 2 to understand the wife's role. The wife's role in marriage is to be her husband's helper. In Genesis chapter 2, you remember uh, God creates Adam and he says it's not good for man, man to be alone. I will create, what? A helper suitable for him. So even though Paul doesn't use the word here uh, by scripture interpreting scripture, we understand that the wife's role is to be her husband's helper and that the attitude that she brings to that role, the way she is to conduct herself in the midst of that role is to submit to her husband. So her role is to help and she does that. The attitude that she brings to that role is to submit. Now, I, I just know submission is a loaded word. Uh, I think maybe if you're here, uh, maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. And, and if you're not, thank you for being here today. Or, or maybe you're newly married or maybe you've had a bad experience. I, I don't know. People come from all over the place. But that's a, that can be a loaded word. It is a loaded word. Submit. Until we really understand what biblical submission is, what biblical submission looks like. Let me just give you three different definitions. Uh, John Piper uh, defines submission this way. The divine calling to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and to help carry it through, listen to this phrase, according to her gifts. To help carry it through according to her gifts. Brian Chappell in his Ephesians commentary says submission is the pouring of one's self into the completion of another. And then one man said that submission is the full expression of your gifts on behalf of another. Now what I want you to get, what is critical in each and every one of these definitions is that to be submitted to your husband as his helper is in no way demeaning in God's economy. It's actually a divine a calling, and, and God doesn't demean anyone when he calls them to something. It is not demeaning, and it doesn't mean that his wife, that a wife is just to be a doormat, that just, yes, dear, whatever you say, dear, um, you know, kind of a, a, a mousy uh, doormat. Wives, if you hear nothing else, and husbands, if you hear nothing else, hear this. A wife's role is to be a helper, not submitter. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I just do what Matthew tells me. A wife's role is to be a helper, not a submitter. See, oftentimes when wives think of, and people teach on this, wives, your role is to submit to your husband. No, it's not. The attitude that you bring to your role is one of respect and submission, but your role is to be a helper to your husband. It is a distinction that we have to keep clear. Submission is the heart attitude that will be most helpful to your husband. If you want to fulfill your role to help your husband, then bring an attitude of submission and respect to that role. Wives, you cannot help your husband if you don't bring to bear all of the graces that God has put in your life. You cannot be the wife that God has called you to be unless you bring to bear all of those graces. And by the way, husbands, you cannot be the husband that you were called to be to bring out the best in your wife as Christ brings out the best in the church without encouraging and bringing forth 
in her all of those graces. So your intelligence, your wisdom, your abilities, your experiences, God has given those to you uniquely to be the perfect helper for your husband. And you must bring those things to bear in your marriage. And husbands, oh my, you need to appreciate your need for a helper. Don't, don't miss what happened in Genesis. He has this man, Adam, he's perfect. But God looks at him and said, that dude needs help. It, this, this is not good. Now, he's not reflecting, ah, oh, I made a mistake, let me go back and think. He had this plan and all the... But he's trying to communicate something to him. Adam, Adam needed help. He couldn't have done what God had called him to do without a helper. He, he was pitiful. He needed help. He needed a, a, a wife. There, there was support that he needed was lacking in him. And so, husbands, if you, if you ever, the thought ever crosses your mind, oh, I don't need her. We just go back to Genesis chapter 2 and recognize, no, man, you need a helper, and God is kind enough to give you a helper. And wives, as that helper, you need to use all those graces. And husbands, appreciating your need for a helper, you need to evoke or bring forth or encourage all of those graces in your wife. Now, Paul also says a couple things here that is interesting, that that wife's submission is to be as to the Lord, in verse 22, in, in Colossians, when Paul talks about marriage, as is fitting. What does that mean, as to the Lord? It simply means this, that a wife's submission to her husband is part of her submission to Christ as her head. That in God's economy, one of the ways that she submits herself to Christ is by submitting herself to her husband. It is one of the ways that she serves the Lord. She serves the Lord. Wives, you serve the Lord by serving your husband, by receiving God's plan for order and delegated authority in your home. It's the way you serve the Lord. And then in verse 24, it says something that, again, is kind of controversial in everything. And, well, wait a minute, if he tells me to sin, if he... No, it's nothing sinful, nothing untoward. The assumption here is that if husbands are loving their wives as Christ loved the church, and that means that you're always wanting the best, you're never going to ask your wife to do anything that uh, she would say, I, I, I can't do that. Now, uh, just like for husbands, the opposite of loving servant leadership is harshness. For wives, the opposite of loving servant leadership, and I bring these things up because I think these things, harshness and, and what I'm going to talk about here in a minute, are the things that can most and, and most commonly do ruin marriages and keep us from fulfilling what God has called us to here. Um, the opposite of gentle, respectful submission is contentiousness. Contentiousness. To be argumentative, rebellious, nagging, or domineering. Uh, scripture testifies in variety of places that a contentious woman, rather than being a joy and a helper to her husband, will be a burden to her husband, that rather than being a builder of her home, she will be a destroyer of her home. 
And contentiousness really comes from, I think, two heart drives, fear and discontent. Uh, a wife may fear if her husband's not leading biblically. I understand. You know, what if he's not fulfilling the role that God has called him to? What's, what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my family? And so we can, we can let that fear overcome us rather than trusting God that if I just do what God has called me to do, I can trust our marriage to God, uh, that we begin to fear and then start grasping and taking over those leadership roles. That's why a husband abdicating is so serious because it tempts his wife when the husband doesn't lead to be fearful and then begin assuming those roles that are not hers to uh, assume and that she doesn't actually have the grace to assume. And then the other is discontent. And here I'm not talking about discontent with a husband that stinks. Uh, I'm talking about sometimes wives can be discontent with their husband's biblical leadership. That, that they just want their own way. They just, they just want what they want. Uh, and sometimes the husband's biblical leadership is reasonable, uh, but the wife is not happy with that, that biblical leadership. And I, I bring this harshness and contention up because... Uh, I, I think it's important not only to see the positive picture that is um, painted for us here, uh, but also the negative effects if we don't fulfill that. And I, I think there is a cycle that in 32 years of pastoral ministry uh, that I've seen over and over again in, in troubled marriages. The husband abdicates, the wife becomes contentious, he gets angry and bitter, she becomes frustrated, fearful, and bitter, and uh, this gets back to what I said about motives. Th this is where it is so critical for each spouse to be committed uh, to the motivation of God's glory and to uh, the glory of the gospel. We can't control what our spouse is like, but each one of us can control and has the grace for the role and the attitude that God has called us to in marriage. Now, um, Paul says one more thing here that I want to look at, and then we're gonna, we can close. In verse 31, uh, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This, again, is a reference back to Genesis chapter 2 and God's original plan for marriage. Uh, one man, Francis Folk, said that this passage is the most profound and fundamental statement in the whole of Scripture concerning God's plan for marriage that as, as the husband is a loving servant leader and as the wife is a respectful, submitted helper, that a oneness, a practical, a functional oneness, we are one by virtue of being united in marriage. But there is a goal in marriage of a functional or a practical oneness that is promoted by these roles and attitude, uh, a oneness that brings us to this wonderful intimacy in every area of, uh, of, of our lives, an intimacy that is known as one flesh, a unity, a partnership, an affection, a knowledge uh, combined in marriage so that, what, as, as, as God said back in Genesis, they were naked and unashamed. There was no barrier separating, nothing hindering a couple uh, from oneness. To be married and not function as one is to be incomplete. The degree to which 
you fail to fulfill your role with the attitude that God has called you to is the degree to which you are personally diminished in your life and in your walk with Christ. So for wives, let me summarize it this way. I want to benefit from my husband's unique gifts and calling by receiving the protection and provision of his leadership and care as the Lord has ordained so that I might be a better wife and Christian woman. To do otherwise is to work against my own good. For husbands, I would summarize it this way. I want to identify and appreciate my wife's unique gifts, wisdom, insights, etc., and humbly receive them as provision for me to be a better husband and a better Christian man. To do otherwise is to work against my own good. Let me finish just by circling back around to the gospel-centeredness of it all and why it is so important we recognize this this model that Christ has given uh, for the church. It is only as you as a husband are continually aware of and remembering and reveling in and rejoicing in and are humbled by Christ's love for his church, Christ's love for you. It is only as the gospel is first and foremost and central in everything you do in your life, it is only in that that you will constantly have that wonderful reminder that you need of what it means to be a husband who models your loving servant leadership after Christ's leadership for his church. And the same thing is true for wives. Wives, only as you are aware of uh, what Christ has called the church to uh, as, as Savior and Lord, to be submitted to him, to follow him, to, uh, to obey him, to serve him in all of the ways that you're called. In all, it, it's only as you keep that gospel truth and the end result of that gospel truth, that day where you were stand before him in perfection and receive that well done, it is only as you remember that and keep that gospel truth before you that you will be able to, with faith and courage, uh, be able to be that wife that God has called you to be. The better we understand the gospel, the better we will understand marriage, and the more our marriages will reflect the glory of God and the glory of the gospel as God has intended. Amen. Thank you.